This podcast contains detailed descriptions of violence and murder and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. The material discussed is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to those affected by the crime. bashed and strangled while walking home at night, the killer has never been caught. Betty was very highly respected. She was liked by everybody in the suburb of Wilston. They were shocked at the brutality of the murder of Betty Shanks. 19th of September, 1952. There's been a shocking sex murder at Wilston. 400 police are now involved in a major murder manhunt. The murderer could have been lurking in the shadows at the murder spot and suddenly attacked the deceased as she walked past. I'm Tori Shepherd, a journalist with a strong interest in true crime and anything mysterious. And this is Mapping Evil with Mike King. Mike has spent his life exploring the darker side of humanity. He's a world-renowned criminal profiler. He's written multiple books. He runs his own YouTube channel and he's pioneered the use of geographic information system technology in law enforcement. Over the years, Mike has sat face-to-face with abusers, rapists and murderers to try and understand how they choose their victims and why. It has been over 40 years, it's hard to believe. They heard two screams. These were female screams and there was about one or two seconds between the first scream and the second scream. Today, we're going to talk about who could have been responsible for the death of this incredibly fascinating young woman. And Mike, I say fascinating because I've learned there is a lot more to Betty Shanks than I initially realised. She's not just a headline. Boy, isn't that the truth? And I'm really getting the impression that you're ready to tackle the intriguing links that we've discovered, especially about ASIO. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I guess I thought she was just a a university student, but there is this ASIO link, and that is the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation here in Australia. Yeah, I guess everybody in Australia knows what ASIO means, but for everybody in the US, I'm glad you called it out. It's kind of the equivalent to the CIA or the Central Intelligence Agency here. It is. It's a little more local, not so much about the uh, regime change, not so much about overthrowing the dictatorships, but yes, it's it's one of our spy organisations. <laughs> oh, okay, now listen, if we're jumping into the conspiracy theories, it, you know, it, it really makes me think about these regime changes, but this one is a little different because there's a bunch of conspiracy theories out there. And this thing makes me think about the recent research that Ted Dews undertook. I, I mean, this guy says he's uncovered information that suggests Betty Shanks was being recruited by ASIO. Agents from Melbourne were coming there. They were completely unaware that, that Betty had been murdered until they showed up at her home hoping to recruit her. So that timing's kind of incredible, isn't it? Like, just a few days between the visit from the spy chiefs and when she was actually murdered. It makes the case more intriguing. And Mike leaves us with even more unanswered questions. These brutal cases haunt us, Tori. They don't make sense to us, but they make perfect sense to these predators who commit them. 
The murder of Betty Shank sent shockwaves across sleepy, serene Brisbane, at that time pretty much just a town, a hot and humid town in Australia, in Queensland. People often call it the day the city lost its innocence. You didn't lock doors, you didn't close windows, you went out and left the house wide open. Uh, you went to the pictures at night and walked home on your own. Betty was certainly kicked. She was kicked so hard, the autopsy said fractured mandible, her jaw was broken. Episode 2, Murdering Betty, Geography of Crime and Punishment. And just to let you know, where possible the voices you'll hear in this podcast are of those directly involved in the case, but in some instances, actors' voices have been used. It's been 70 years making this Brisbane's longest-running cold case, the murder of 22-year-old Betty Shanks. This violent, horrific crime still lives on in people's psyche. Even today, there's a reward of $50,000 for information which could help catch Betty's killer. It was 1952, so they would be quite old by now. But at the time, police grilled thousands of people. There was this long list of suspects. We're going to talk about a lot of them. There were confessions, hints, leaks, leads, red herrings. Over the years, at least seven men have confessed to the murder of Betty. In this episode, we're going to look at a few of those suspects and hopefully get a little closer to who would do such a violent and horrific deed. Here's what Detective Senior Sergeant Merv Chalmers said about the murder. When I saw the body, I realised just how horrible the whole thing was. She'd been kicked or bashed so hard in the side of the face that one of her teeth had dislodged from its socket, emerged through the cheek on the other side of her face and landed on the grass. I was put on the Shanks case two weeks after the murder and it stayed with me until I retired. In all that time, we didn't come close to finding the murderer. Not once. Betty was strangled, kicked, viciously bashed as she was walking home from the tram after 9.30 at night to her family home in Montpelier Street. It's really astounding to hear about the violent nature of this crime. It was out of control. This this doesn't seem like, you know, an opportunistic crime or, or just a crime of passion. It was somebody who really had lost control. And it certainly baffled the detectives at the time because of the nature of it. And so they really wanted to hear from the public and gather up any information they could. This is what Detective Senior Sergeant Bauer told the inquiry inquest. The murderer would have been absent from his place of residence on the night of the 19th of September for some hours and would no doubt have returned to his home with his hands and clothes heavily stained with blood. It would have been necessary for him to wash and dry, burn or otherwise destroy his bloodstained clothing as secretly as possible. These things are so difficult to talk about, Tori, and think about it. Murdering somebody in this manner isn't easily done. Betty Shanks would have undoubtedly fought like a lioness. This predator couldn't have come out of this unscathed. He, he likely would have blood all over him, perhaps scratches on his face and arms and hands. His clothing would have certainly been torn and certainly disheveled. There's evidence like blood transfers on the top rail of the fence that support this theory. You know, and I've always been a little bit troubled by the news report that stated the assault was the result of a sex maniac on the loose. Developing theories like this quickly in an investigation 
can create a lot of red herrings that really foul things up. Listen to what Detective Senior Sergeant Norm Bauer had to say about this case. The post-mortem examination has revealed that sexual intercourse did not take place and the deceased was a virgin. It would appear from the partial undressing of the body and from the position in which the body had been placed that the objective of her assailant was to make a sexual attack but that he had been thwarted in some way. It may have been that the deceased came to her senses and, and screamed out, upon which her attacker made a frenzied attack on her, cruelly kicking or striking her about the face and throttling her. The grass stains on the deceased's knees and the black marks as of boot polish on her legs allied to the fact that her blouse had been torn open and that the top of her brassiere was torn would support the suggestion that the deceased had made a struggle for her life. So, Mike, as a journalist, I can also imagine what would have happened at the time, this huge public interest. I mean, everyone would have been talking about it. Journalists would have been looking for clues, new ways to discuss it, new headlines. And so we saw at the time in the newspapers things like sex, maniac, murder. Uh, We heard Bauer talk about it there. There were just so many theories, and I guess people were just trying to work out what had happened. I mean, think about this. We have suspects that that are from such differing backgrounds, and it is so important that we look at the fact of whether they're a police officer or a soldier or a doctor or somebody else, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. It just doesn't matter. What really matters is focusing in on the behavior, and does that behavior tie to this criminal case? You're so right, Mike. And I feel like it's one of the real hallmarks of this case that there were just all these suspects that popped up. There's the man in the brown suit, there's the soldier, there's the policeman. And it's really quite satisfying when we start to really whittle that down. But we need to start looking at these suspects, Mike, and I'm really keen to hear what your thoughts are. Firstly, there's the doctor. So on the 22nd of September in 1952, the Queensland Times newspaper reported two headlines. One was nationwide search for sex killer. So they're still calling it a sex killer. And the story next to that was about a possible suicide by a doctor. Death of an Ipswich doctor. The body of prominent Ipswich medical man, Dr Carter, aged 39, was discovered by his wife in his garden at 1am. Dr. Carter had sustained a throat wound and a knife was found nearby. So we know Dr. Carter died two days after Betty's murder. And there was all this speculation that maybe the two were connected. There were rumours that he'd met Betty Shanks at university lectures, that he'd maybe been trying to form a relationship with her, but that she had rejected him because he was married. But it's, it's all speculation. Yes, and the speculation just continues. Let's not forget that Betty also received a mysterious phone call a few days before she was murdered. Her boss said that the call really rattled her, and I'm left wondering, what were the behaviors that he observed that that led him to this conclusion? I mean, was his assessment accurate, or did he read more into the call than there was, creating a potential red herring? 
I remember comments made by Detective Chandler during the early stages of this case. As you recall, he was the first detective that arrived on the crime scene, and he theorized that the doctor was the killer. Well, according to media reports, he also advised the inspector handling the case that he believed it was the doctor who phoned Betty at work. He believed she refused his advances over the phone, and that's why he murdered her. Holy cow, I'm kind of perplexed by this. I mean, what evidence did he have to arrive at this kind of conclusion? And frankly, could have pushed the entire investigation in the wrong direction. Now, we know that the inspectors disregarded the detective's theory, although he continued to say that he believed the doctor met Betty at the tram terminus, and then he killed her after an argument. Here's senior detective Abe Duncan speaking about the doctor as a suspect in this case. 50 hours after Betty Shanks's death, that doctor committed suicide and he cut his own throat with a butcher's knife in the yard of his own residence of Ipswich. Well, Mike, I may have been a bit mean about my colleagues in the press earlier saying that they, you know, put all these headlines together, but that information came from somewhere and the police also had all these different theories that they were banding about. And you add to that the fact that, again, the public interest was so high that people were calling in with their own ideas or confessions or things that they thought they knew. And we know that some allege that the doctor's suicide was in fact a murder. But actually, in the end, there's no known evidence connecting him to the murder. And the doctor, his two sons as well, they were really plagued by their dad's connection to the Betty Shanks murder. And relatively recently, they put forward a DNA test, but it wasn't matched against a contaminated sample from Betty's clothing. And I guess that really underlines part of the challenge on this case, Mike, that there aren't conclusive DNA samples from the murder scene We hear a lot about DNA now, but in 1952, not so much. And look, we might talk about that a bit later, Mike. But with Dr Carter, he was cleared of any involvement in Betty's death, and there doesn't even seem to be evidence that the two had ever met. So he lived in Ipswich, which is a bit more than 30 kilometres from Brisbane, and his own death was pretty mysterious. More of those unanswered questions, Mike, but definitely not related to Betty's murder. I don't know why it is that we want quick answers to these mysteries, and I've wondered if the two deaths, because they appear on the cover of the same newspaper, led to these ghost stories that connect the doctor. There were interesting tidbits of information, even some that was relational, but at the end of the day, I feel pretty comfortable in ruling out Dr. Carter as one of those suspects. I think I'm with you, Mike. I know that that's how it often works with the media. You just, you're, it's almost febrile. You're picking up on little bits of information and, and seeing what kind of pattern you can form. And sometimes it's just the wrong pattern. You mentioned DNA, Tori, and it's important to think about the fact that DNA has changed dramatically over the years. It's certainly much better today than it was when Betty Shanks was murdered. We were able to collect some things back then, but the ability to analyze it and tie it to cases is so much better today. But the question just drives me batty at times, wondering if there truly was DNA in the crime files somewhere, if it was destroyed if they had it, or if it ever existed. We still have so many questions. But let's talk about the soldiers. It's strange to picture this now, but in 1952, when Betty Shanks was killed, 
There were all these soldiers in Brisbane. It was the middle of the Korean War and the first of Australia's original national service intakes had started. So it was a fairly common sight to see soldiers on the streets. A newspaper reporter at the time, that's author Ken Blanche, who you know, Mike, said that the mark left on Betty Shanks's forehead after her death suggested a person wearing shoes that left a particular pattern had kicked her during the attack. So he thought it was basically a, a footprint there on her forehead. And he says he formed that opinion that she was kicked by someone wearing heavy footwear because of the force that was used. So that's another theory from Ken Blanche. Here's the thing, fresh boot polish was definitely found on her body, Mike. We're so lucky to have reports from people like Ken. And I also had the chance to speak with Ted Dews, the author of the book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks. We talked about the case in detail. Mr. Dews is confident in his assessment that a soldier had nothing to do with this murder. He thinks it was much more personal. I want to pause and listen to some of what Ted Dews had to say when we spoke. The particular injury you're talking about is the patterned mark on Betty's forehead. It's rectangular. It's spots of hemorrhage. Now, Ken Blanche, early on, had the idea that Betty was killed by a soldier. And in his book, Ken Blanche has a photograph of the rectangular mark on Betty's forehead, which is about... um, four centimetres square and juxtaposed against that is a photograph of the marks that a soldier's gaiter, which at the time canvas gaiter, soldiers wore around their ankles. And the patterns are similar, but they're not identical. So that's one reason why I don't think Betty was killed by a soldier. Mike, it's so complicated. Here's another confounding fact that not long before she was killed, Betty Shanks won the Golden Casket Lottery. So she won the lotto, right? And in 1952, the paper published all the winners' names. I mean, that's astounding to me, the idea that anyone who wins a large sum of money has their name put in the papers. So people have suggested, could the mysterious phone call that she got at work, the one you mentioned before that really rattled her, could it have come from someone demanding money from her? Could somebody had gone after her and tried to snatch her handbag? Could it be just a theft that went wrong? So that's another theory, but let's park that for now and move on to the policeman on the motorbike. Now, this theory is backed by the Ipswich historian Lyle Reid, who says a rogue police officer struck Betty with his motorcycle as she was crossing Carberry Street from Thomas Street and that he rode away and came back later and strangled her to make sure she was dead. And again, we've got those maps on the website at mappingevil.com.au so you can kind of picture how this might have happened. Ted Jews also mentioned this theory. The motorcyclist picked her up and he walked further along the footpath in Thomas Street and threw her over the fence into the backyard of the Hills residence, which is where Betty's body was found on Saturday morning by Constable Stewart. Now, the Ipswich historian then says that an hour later, the motorcyclist came back to verify that Betty was dead and he strangled Betty and she was finally dead. This happened at around about 10.30. 
Now, this is easily disproved because there is a photograph in my book of blood spots on the asphalt footpath and there's about 20 or maybe 30 blood spots identified by the police. Now, those blood spots are located on the footpath in Thomas Street, very, very close to the third Bohemia tree. And they would have come from an attack on Betty in the backyard of the Hills residence. They could not have come from an accident with a motorcycle 30 yards away in Carberry Street. It's clear that if Betty Shanks were hit in the intersection by a passing vehicle or the motorcycle theory, there would have been physical evidence at the point of contact, not to mention all the debris that would indicate the direction of the impact and the direction that she would have gone. I've not personally studied the forensic information on this thing up close, and reprints can be kind of misleading. But the direction in which the blood spatter originates and the location it lands is conclusive in nature and would paint a much clearer picture of at least that piece of the puzzle, Tori. So I'm I'm having trouble with that one. Reward poster, 30th of March, 1953. Willful murder, 1,000 pounds reward. The cooperation of the general public is sought by the police department to trace the murderer of Betty Thompson Shanks, aged 22, single, who met her death by violence and whose body was found at 5.35 a.m. on the 19th of September, 1952. Well, in cases like this, the investigators, police commanders, and government officials in general are under an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, not only do they want to personally solve these crimes, they also want to reassure the public that they are safe out there. That pressure has remained even now, even after 70 years. And the only thing that they know today, though, is that the killer had large hands. And they got that by evidence on the on the fence where those large bloody handprints were. And the fact that the predator likely wore highly polished black footwear. So, Mike, we talked about this a little bit last episode about all the new technology. So if investigators were looking at Betty's murder today and they had access to all the GIS, all the crime mapping technology that you're now so familiar with, what would they do now? How would they drill down on all these different suspects that we've talked about? I think they'd first do it exactly the same as far as collecting the information. But what we can do today that is so darn exciting is we can look at people like the doctor or or the soldier or the policeman out on his motorbike, and we can examine that information, something, some of it that comes from eyewitness accounts or confessions or admissions. Uh, But now we can add things like CCTV footage from local businesses or uh, doorbells that are collecting imagery out on the street. All of that information really helps us bring these cases together and it actually supports or excludes certain things that before would have sent us down crazy rabbit holes. And I think one of the interesting things about all that new technology is it can probably help people remember something like, did I see something? And then sometimes they can go back and look it up. Whereas I guess back in the day, you might be able to just jog their memory and they can access that, the wild, access their memories without the help of a smartphone. (laughs) 
<laughs> so look, as we go on, Mike, and we work our way through these suspects, we cannot forget about the, quote, indistinct man in the brown suit. He just keeps cropping up as a person of interest. That meant that there were four people that night who saw the man in the brown suit. And the police eventually came to believe that it was the man in the brown suit who very likely killed Betty Shanks. So here we have four different people who have seen this man in the brown suit, the person that likely killed Betty Shanks. We need to understand why this person is in the area. Was it someone that was there because she was a target? Or did it just happen to be that two people came together in space and time and then this horrible event occurred? This is going to be really interesting as we learn more about the man in the brown suit. And in our next episode, we hear an account that this man in the brown suit was the murderer. A handyman working at Betty's house at the time and supposedly obsessed with Betty. And his daughter is convinced that he did it. So that'll be episode three of Mapping Evil. Mike, I can't wait. Thank you, Tori. I can't wait either. And I love the fact that we are now starting to narrow some of these possible suspects down to who's more probable. And that's going to get us a little closer to bringing some justice to Betty Shanks. If you found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have any information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. If you're interested in learning more about Queensland's longest standing cold case murder, we recommend Ted Do's book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, the third edition. And if you've got a strong stomach and you're keen to take a look at the news reports of the time, check out Trove Archives. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepard, and Mike King. Production and sound designed by Fig Media with support from Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Tell Brown Creative. Our supervising producer is Kim Douglas. Our executive producer is Raquel Jackson. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.